Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Wild Tales podcast. I'm Jason Fox, and this series is all about adventure, resilience, and inspirational humans. The podcast is presented by the Book of Man and in partnership with Talisker, the single malt whiskey made by the sea. My guest today is Victoria Pendleton, one of the most successful British athletes of all time. After her cycling medals at the Beijing and London Olympics, she became a household name and was awarded an MBE. Since then, she has been a jockey, climbed Everest, and been a voice in breaking taboos around mental health. In the episode, we answer some questions that you've asked me on Instagram. I'm going to be sending a bottle of Talisker to the top question. Anyway, here we go. Hope you enjoy it. Victoria Pendleton, the legend, here you are. Thank you so much for coming on uh, the podcast. Um, I'll, I'll start with the obvious question, which I've started with through all of these um, podcasts of this series, because it's reasonably prevalent, is how has lockdown been for you? Well, um, lockdown actually hasn't been too bad for me, mainly because my life is very much like lockdown most of the time. I've been furloughed since 2012, so it feels quite familiar. And I guess for me, I spend a lot of time outdoors. I spend a lot of time doing sports. So it's just given me a more opportunity to do the things I like, really. Yeah, it's been, I've actually really enjoyed it. I think the biggest thing about lockdown is being able to prioritize your fitness training. Yeah. And for me, that is a, a real, uh, it's a familiarity about my health, it, it, keeping that routine in, doing your training every day, being able to do that in your own time for as long as you like is a blessing and yeah. something I definitely have enjoyed. And I, I know I need to prioritize my fitness training because sometimes it gets lost, lost in the midst of the chaos of what you do in your life and going here and doing that and flying off here and, and not really thinking, well, I want to make that time for me. It's important. It's important for my body. It's important for my mind. Um, mm. It's definitely reminded me to prioritize the fitness. Yeah. It's been, it's been it's, to be honest, I've, got, I've managed to get in some decent routines. It's actually starting to taper off now because, you know, things are slowly going back to normal. People are getting busier. And I'm like, hang on a minute. I want the whole day to train. Please. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know it's been tough for a lot of people, but I'm, you know, and I'm making light of the situation. Yeah. But it has been a good thing for getting like your your, your routine fizz in physical ex- exercise. But um, are you still quick on a bike? Do you know what? I surprised myself actually. <laughs> not not that you're blowing your own I trumpet. Look at my average K now, and I was like, that's not bad actually. I don't get involved with all the Strava and all that because I know that that's that's just. That would be scratching away at my competitive side. So I was like, yeah, yeah. You don't want to open up that can of words. No, no, no. no. (laughs) Um, But 
because I've been doing so much running, my cardio has probably not been this good for a long time. I don't have the power and the explosive strength that I used to have because I don't put the weight training, the power training in as much. But in terms of my CV, my VO2 max is really good at the moment. And it feels nice, especially approaching my 40th birthday, to be physically in a place that, you know. When's that? September. What What have you got planned? Well, I was going to go and stay in a little uh, castle in Scotland, in the Cairngorms, and be hiking. Well, it might still happen. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. You've got to get your bookings in early, I reckon. It's all booked. I booked oh, right. about a year ago, but I'm hoping that it will still go ahead. Yeah, I reckon you'll be right. Yeah. Not keep, keep a positive um, yes. mindset and all that, Lark. Anyway, yeah. let's uh, let's get back to you and the story of Victoria Pendleton. When did it? Where? What was your childhood like? Actually, let's let's go right back. So um, I was a very quiet child and incredibly shy (laughs) and awkward and I really found that sport was the only thing that I felt that I could really in like express myself doing like it was the the one thing that came naturally to me and that I was quite good at so I joined every kind of sports team I tried everything and I was always encouraged to do lots of sport I've got a twin brother so we always used to go and like hey do you want to go to the tennis courts today should we do this today like we always found stuff to do and it was nice to have someone to always participate in sport with my dad is a very keen cyclist so we spent a lot of time on the bikes training I realise now that the kind of mileage I was putting in as a child, though, was unusually high, but at the time yeah. it just seemed like the norm. So he kind of prepared me physically. And probably why I was good at sport is because I was fit from a very young age compared to my peers. Yeah. Um, and for that, I'm very grateful. Um, so I had quite a, yeah, a very outdoorsy. Um, what was your first bike? It was a second-hand bike, um, hand-me-down, um, for my sister, probably. And I don't remember... Well, I had a trike first. I had three wheels first when I was a toddler. And I still had a dummy. I had three wheels. And then, and then I got um, two wheels. And I remember... I do remember the pressure of my dad getting me to ride without stabilisers because my brother had done it a few weeks prior. And he was like, right, there's no excuse. Oh. You've got to do it now. And I was like, okay, Dad, I can do it. And I remember him pushing us up the road, you know, by pushing our backs and then letting go and it being quite like, um, <laughs> But I, I had that competitive drive. I was like, well, Alex can do it. I can do it. Um, so we both got on, the, on these oversized um, bikes, saddles right down on the top tube. I remember my first road bike first because Dad let us choose the colours to have it resprayed because they were both secondhand um, road frames and I went with a, a white and blue fade very 80s yeah so what was what was what make what make was it i don't know why i'm interested i don't even know i don't even know what it was to be perfect there's so many bikes out there now isn't there Uh, it was just re-sprayed so i would never have known anyway it was just blue and white it was a unique one of a kind bespoke blue and white (laughs) bike i remember when i was a kid it was like i think there was just rally rally chopper yeah that's too fancy for me now this now there seems to be just too many bikes. There's too many mate brands, and I, they get I get confused. They're mega expensive as well. <laughs> I actually somebody at that embarrassing moment I was like, "How much does a good bike cost these days?" And I was like, I, I, "I don't know." And then I was thinking, "How many bikes have I actually paid for in my life?" And I was like, 
Uh, none. 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 That's embarrassing. Yeah. It's like when someone says, how much is a pint of milk? And you're like, no, I have no idea. But, um, so obviously that's, that's how you started off. Um, what was life like as a teenager? Were you, by that stage, were you like fully, fully involved mm. in a sport? Well, I was racing from the age of nine, um, just in small school girls and school boys events, they're called. Like they'd put a couple of races on at a, a track event for, for youngsters. And I was training at the weekend, doing sport, the sports I wanted to do throughout the week. I was cycling to school quite a lot and it was about a seven mile ride. It wasn't anything fancy, um, or like a challenging ride. And I was, uh, it was a hobby, but it was a serious hobby. You know, I spent my free time preparing yeah. for it. And after school, I might go for a bike ride with my dad. Not that much. It wasn't serious because I think my dad appreciated that as a kid, you need to find joy in what you're doing. You can't push kids to do things they don't want to do. So he was he he didn't get serious really with my training until I was probably about 15 and he suddenly thought he could see some potential in me and I was talent spotted the following year by um, the national team so after that point it got serious like having a real training program rather than just being sporty seven days a week you you were racing for the school yeah just racing just for my local cycling club Oh, cycling club. And then obviously the national teams have got their, their scouts that go out yeah. and watch. So they obviously watched competitive, like, inter-club stuff. Yeah, so they didn't watch necessarily watch me, but all the results are print, used to be printed in the back of the Cycling Weekly magazine. So even the smallest yeah. event, and you have to get a magnifying glass out to read the print. <laughs> but my name kept cropping up and they were like, need to speak, find out who this girl is and what she's up to. And they knew who my dad was. Um because he'd been quite on the domestic scene, was quite well known in the lower cap kind of road races, hill climbs and those kind of things. And yeah. he invited me up to Manchester. And I remember the day that Marshall Thomas, who was the assistant coach, rang my house and I was like, Dad, there's a man on the phone, says he wants me to go to Manchester. And my dad was like, <gasps> and I was like, because it was totally unexpected out of the blue. I never thought yeah. that it, it would take me that far. Well, um, so was that the was that England or GB? I don't know how, how does it. Can you explain to us how that works? This, this sort of national setup. Mm. So there is actually only like a, a British Cycling, which is Team GB, it is yeah. selected from. But during Commonwealth cycles, there's a Team England and Scotland yeah. and Wales separately that pan off. So they might have a development program for English athletes. In, in a couple of years up to the Commonwealth Games, but it's not a permanent program as it, like home nation kind of thing. It, it's only Team GB. So I was asked to join the England Potential Program because we had the Manchester Commonwealth um, Games yeah. um, coming up. When was that then? That was, when was that? When was that? That's how good my brain is. Can't even remember. It's, it's an irrelevant question. I'm just obsessed okay. with dates and times. So they kind of set up an England potential program, and that's the first official program I went to. They talent spotted me, but I didn't accept the proposal um, until I finished university. Um, right. I really felt there was no um, lottery funding for athletes at the time in '96. Yeah. Um, you were looking at a career 
where you had a part-time job and you trained part-time and you represented Great Britain. And we weren't a great sporting nation for that reason, because we didn't ever have the funding behind athletes to be full-time and compete yeah. with nations who have government-funded programs of, of athletes and support networks. So I was like, I'm going to get, go to uni, I'm going to do sports science, um, I'm going to train while I'm there and keep fit because it allows you to use much better facilities than I had in my hometown of Stockfold, Bedfordshire. And yeah, <laughs> and, um, and then sort of go into it once I've got something to fall back on. And I thought I'll be able to get a better part-time job being a graduate than I would otherwise. And also I'll be able to elevate my standard to make the, the Great Britain team selection. Um, times when I where did you go to uh, where did you go to uni Northumbria Newcastle all right and you met you still managed to even though you're there doing that obviously that allowed you to still cycle didn't it mm. so basically they offered a, a small bursary for minority sports athletes which was really rare so that's the reason I chose that university and it allowed me to travel to Manchester to do five days in the month with the with the team full time and then bring my training back and use the facilities to train in my own time. Um, and my lecturer, my tutor at uni was a very keen long distance running coach. And he said to me, there's time, there's enough time at university to train to be an elite athlete, to, to get a degree. And there is the opportunity to socialize. He goes, there's three things you can do with your time, at, but realistically, you can only do two and make that choice now. And I did. Mm. So I didn't really have a social life at uni, but I could train as much as I wanted to. They had a fantastic gym. I had free weights coaching um, and I studied really hard. So I chose that because I wanted to make it. I wanted to make it onto the team. Yeah. Well, that's, that's dedication to what you wanted to do. You know, you could have been really good at drinking, but instead you... <laughs> no, I, I, I used to occasionally go out to a club, which, which I loved. But it was, it was a sacrifice I was willing to make because your career is so short and I really wanted to make it. Yeah, well, you made the right decision, I'd say. <laughs> um, can you remember, so, like, sort of, I don't know whether this is fast-forwarding or not, but... Um, can you remember the first major cycling race you won and what was it? So in terms of a, a GB athlete or? I don't know. No. In, in your mind, what was, the, what's the, what was the first standout race for you? Okay. I think probably for me, I was about, I was 16 and I won the national grass track 800 metres title, which is really insignificant. What, what is it? Say that again. The grass national track. grass track grass. racing, as in on grass. So okay. it's a track bike with slightly knobbly, like almost cross tires, cyclo cross yeah. tires, and it's a four hundred meter, usually on a like a really on, on turf. So maybe a crisp round a cricket um, ground. Pitch, yeah. So they, they choose some a, a nice turf, and basically they peg out the inside. So there's wooden pegs. Don't hit those. And then you just race like track racing. So obviously you have to, it's hard work because you're riding on grass on a fixed wheel bike. Yeah. And if you go too fast, you slide up. Slip. Yeah. So it's a really interesting contrast between power and sort of like, oh, just tempering it. But it was really good bike handling skills as well to move on to the velodrome. You know, 
I had ridden on really bumpy, nasty grass tracks, but also being small and light had an advantage because I'm racing against fully grown men, maybe 85 kgs sinking in the mud. And I'm kind of skimming over the top of the dirt. No and they're like, oh, and I was picking up wins. So that was, it played to my advantage for the, the only time in my life, being a little bit more lightweight than my competitors paid off. So it was, it's, it was insignificant, but I won a set of Reynolds steel tubes to have a bike built, a track bike built to my exact size. And that for me, I was like, wow, they're giving me like a box awesome. to get a bike built for me. And I used that bike for many years. And I, that was kind of for me, like the first one, I was like, wow. It was so tiny, but I felt really proud of it. That's awesome. That's a great story. <laughs> um, so let's fast forward now to um, when you're now in the GB side. I'm, like, I'm making this up in my head. <laughs> yeah. You're in the GB side. Um, and the bit that I'm mega interested in really is the training re regime. You know, when you're the build up to say like, commonwealth games or olympics you know i always picture it being scientists everywhere you're con con you know you're probably 24 7 attached to some pipe <laughs> in your mouth so you yeah. can be like you know they can work out how well your lungs are working and you're just constantly getting up early is is that what it's like not really Oh, Sorry. We spend a lot of time training in a lab environment. Well, these days people spend a lot. Throughout my career, it changed dramatically. And the funding that cycling had due to its success allowed us to have a very substantial gym with various different cycle ergometers built for specific training. We had one particular bike and it was purely for strength training. It had the equivalent to anybody who knows cycling to a hundred and I think was it? 128 inch gear. So something that you couldn't move from a standstill on. It would be like, uh, okay, yeah. For example, and it was all the torque was measured in the cranks, and you really just had to do like strength training. You maybe only do about like five revolutions, and you'd be gassed, or you'd be like, <laughs> and then we had like bikes with tiny little cranks on where you had to sort of really spin as fast as possible to get the leg speed. And, and they had, um, it was like 300 RPM. Yeah. You'd be like, your legs would be buzzing. And they were all very much, you know, the information was collected, the power, the strain gauges and the cranks. It was all very scientific. So everything was plotted. So we had very specific numbers of, of every effort we did on the track and off the track. The numbers were collated. You would deliver that information. You knew where you were exactly. But it was, you know, six days a week twice a day at least twice a day some days three sessions a day and if you weren't there you're in the physio getting fixed up um <laughs> and that was it or eating it seemed to be all we did like eating training sleeping that's it which i love and it, was that all still up in manchester in Is manchester like the, yeah. the home of british cycling yeah. Home of British cycling, yeah. No, if you're on the national team, you have to move to Manchester to train with the team, which was a great thing because for me, I moved into a team with Jason Queeley, Chris Hoy, Craig McLean, Jamie Starr, multiple world and Olympic champions. I'm surrounded by guys who have been there and done it. And I always felt very grateful because I knew the standard that I needed to try and attain in order to be successful because they did it every day. I couldn't yeah. ever be as fast I can hold on to that back wheel as much as I can, like follow them as hard as I could. But I couldn't have had better role models and support system around me. And 
they actually were really helpful in terms of writing training programs, sometimes tweaking them, giving them giving advice and stuff like that. They're a good bunch of guys to be around and the most successful in the world, which is a perfect environment to be in. Like I feel very lucky. Great guys as well, like really great guys. I would yeah, I'd suggest that you're pretty much at the top of your game as well. Oh, I've got in, there in, you 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 dominated international cycling for a number of years. So you've got, what is it, a record six individual sprint titles yeah. between 2005, 2012. I mean, how, do you stay, how did you stay motivated for that long? Because it is, it is, you know, training six days a week, you know, with a regime where you're being told pretty much what to eat, when to eat and when to get up and when to do this. Yeah. It can be draining, you know. Yeah. So what was, your, what was your motivation to continually do that? I guess the biggest thing for me is one, I was being paid to do it as a job. Okay, yeah, so <laughs> it's important. Okay. It's important. It's very different yeah, when it's your job and you're representing your country. That is your job. It's very different from doing it as a hobby and feeling a bit like, well, I don't really feel like giving it my all today. I felt very honoured to have that as you know, and I had to remind myself. So I'm pulling on every day. I'm pulling on red, white, and blue jersey for training. We had to go in in a uniform. And, you know, you put that flag on, you think, yeah, today I'm going to give it my best because you know your career is so short-lived. One injury, yeah. you're done. And for me, I was always like, I'm going to try and make the most of it because I don't want to get to a point I think, could I have done more? Could I have done more? Could I have pushed myself a little bit further? Because I can honestly say, sat here right now, I couldn't have done any more than I, than I did in terms of give my, myself wholeheartedly to my training. I couldn't have done any more. And I think I got the most I could out of it. And that, for me, means it can be put to bed in some ways, rather than, oh, what if? What if is the most terrifying thing? What if? And I don't, wouldn't want to be plagued by that for the rest of my days in retirement. They're a long time retired as an athlete. You've got to maximise when you can, and then all the other stuff in life can wait. It can really wait. And I didn't find that hard to do at all, really. That's awesome. That's, I mean, yeah, if you're, if you can sit there after it all and say, there's nothing else I could have given, I reckon that's a, that's a testament to your character, VP, I would oh, suggest. But um, I'll tell you what I'm also interested in is, there's a reason I'm asking this question, is um, what role did competition with your rivals have? So I'm, I've just finished watching like uh, The Last Dance. Yes! You watched it? Yes. It's, it's good. I, I say just finished. I watched, finished it a, a few weeks ago, but I was like glued to that. And, it, I, you know, I've played, I'm going to embarrass myself now. I've played sport throughout my time, not at any de decent level, but at level where there's competition. Yeah. And I used to love that. Yeah. And I just wondered, you know, in cycling for you, what, you know, was it an important part, that, that rivalry? And you, there, there was characters that you knew that you had, go up against what was that like well there is some definitely some very well publicized rivalries between myself and animes of australia and, and right. some of the press was a little bit let's say creative in in how it was portrayed um, the press creative no way <laughs> um and i actually sat in a press conference once and an australian um, a guy it, it, from i don't know what publication was like is Anna Mears a cow? And I was like, 
And I laughed because I was like, that is the most ridiculous question I've ever been asked, but obviously trying to get me to dish the dirt on my rivals, show my anger. But I definitely didn't form any relationships with the people I was racing against because I wanted to beat them, all of them, everyone. You didn't, yeah. You didn't, um, want, the human, you didn't want the human element to come into it. No, definitely never. So I probably came across as quite cold. Um, generally, I didn't really get involved with uh, with getting to know people. I didn't really care. I didn't want to know their stories. I didn't want to feel anything for them. I just wanted to beat them. I just wanted to literally just tick a box and go, beaten yeah. you. And I knew when I went into, for example, the Olympic Games, there was nobody on the competition list that I hadn't beaten. So I was like, yeah, that's how I want it to be. But watching that documentary, so many ele elements of it, really struck a chord with me because there there was definitely for me if someone did something like knock me off my line get me an elbow coming around the corner all these things because I play very very fair very straight like I don't get involved with things I'm not gonna if no one's looking give someone I'm not gonna do that it's not me I've always been somebody who follows the rules it would rile me on the inside and I'd be like they have done it and, I, yeah. and sometimes I'd just look, sit there looking at someone, looking through them and be like, you know, okay. you, you're going to, sorry, you're going to get. No, you're allowed, you're allowed, you're allowed, it's all good. Um, yeah, but I just feel like, you know, like I was like, there is no way you were going to beat me. And I just feel like that kind of rage almost, but I just kept like contained. I was like, you, you've really done it now. Like, I'm sorry. And I, I do feel like that negative motivation to, to push yourself is very powerful. Not necessarily right. A lot of people think that negative motivation in sport is wrong, that you should be positively motivated. But for me, most of it was like, I'm going to prove those fuckers wrong. They said, yeah. I'm too small, I can't do it, I'm too feminine, I'm too light, blah, blah, blah. You're too this, you're too emotional, you're too feminine, you're not much like a man. All this, my whole life, I've, had, I've been bombarded by people making visual judgments on me even the mm. national coach when I joined team GB just the, the new coach had just moved there he told me in his French Canadian accent Miss Victoria I'm going to find you very annoying and I was like you have no natural jump and you're too puny to be a sprinter I suggest you look to other elements of cycling and I was like ah uh, right and I took initially I was really like gobsmacked and hurt and I was like and I took that away and I was like there's two things I can do with that comment I can take it to heart and go and cry in the corner or I can prove him wrong and then I was like I'm just gonna quietly keep my head down work hard and prove him wrong and I did you know he left the team went to work with Australia and I thrashed the pants off all of his athletes and he came to shake my hand in um in New Yorker, I'd just become world champion in three different disciplines, which had never been done by foot before. I won the team sprint, sprint, and Kieran. And he came to he came over and he shook my hand and he said, "No, I was wrong about you." And I was like, "You know, I really appreciate that that he did. He you know he did that. He had the ability to do that." Yeah. But I, as I shook his hand, I was like, "You have no idea what you gave me. You have no idea what you gave me. Like you did me a favor. Mm. You filled me with so much determination." To prove you wrong that I was willing to go anywhere to make it happen 
That's, yeah, good. I'm glad you. I'm glad you got to do that. Yeah. Um, I want. I, I, I've been itching to get onto this subject. Oh. So I was like, get there. So it's, it's going to be about the Olympics yeah. and the wins. And the, I'll tell you what. I want to start with Beijing first, and the reason for that is because I. It's 2008. That summer, I was in Afghanistan for a long time, and our our as a group of guys, our escape was that Olympics. So I remember, I remember you winning. We like all the stuff that happened in that Olympics. It was a big, it was a massive distraction and a mega welcome one. So I want to start with that. Well, you know what? It absolutely makes everything I've ever done worthwhile to hear someone like you say that because. It is sport is entertainment at the end of the day. And the fact that it has a reach to do something that provides positivity or distraction or something to someone else makes any kind of pain that you suffer, any injury, any hardship, any sacrifice, you know, insignificant in the scale of it. So thank you, Foxy. And you know what, coming from you also, and I know I've said this to you in the past and it's embarrassing, Coming from someone like you, who I've got a lot of respect for, I really appreciate it because I was just doing my job. Um, well, you did your job well, and you, you know, I will, what I will say about this with sports and, and the Olympics, and it's a shame about what's happened this year, but you know, it, it will bounce back, obviously. But it does, you know, your your efforts and the you know all the athletes, the the efforts that you will put in and the the time and commitment. It doesn't, you know, hopefully it doesn't go unnoticed for the masses, but it does bring countries together. You know, it brings brings communities together. It gives them a focus. It just helps them distract themselves away from all the rubbish noise that goes on. So that's a good thing. And yeah, I'm paying back the the compliment. But um, go on, what was it like? What was, what was that win like? Well, it was weird because I arrived and we were checking out the pressure systems and the temperature and the weather over those days because it can massively affect your speed and, you know, what the, the world record that I was hoping to break. I didn't because the weather was wrong. And the te- you have to have exactly the right temperature and it was high pressure, which is terrible. It makes it harder. You can't go as fast. Yeah. There was this horrible thing going on, I was like, ah, I'm not gonna break the world record. And I remember training and it was the first time that I tried to push the gym up to, like gym training up to 11 days before competition. So not backing off heavy, heavy weights until the last minute. And I was a bit like, well, this is gonna be quite bad. But, you know, like I was worried, I was concerned that it, whether it was gonna work for me. Mm. And I started to, about three or four days before competition, I was doing some efforts. And I said, I couldn't feel my legs. I was like, why can't I feel them? And then I was like, and the coaches were like, oh, how was that for you? And I was like, well, I just can't feel anything, I feel numb. And they were like, and then they showed me the stopwatch and I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, for real? And I couldn't believe it. I was going faster than I'd ever gone before and I couldn't feel it. It was like there was no pain. I couldn't hurt myself. And I was like, this is, um, this is the, the, that moment that athletes speak about when their body just works at the best highest level for that split second that moment and it came together and I was just like oh my gosh like this feels like a dream actually like a dream I couldn't do anything wrong I was like I'm gonna go now and I could overtake and I was like I mean it's almost like it's too easy and that made me feel really nervous because I was like you're used to feeling the fatigue in your legs so when you do something you're like oh yeah that was hard but I reckon okay but I had no sensation and then on the last 
um, on the day of the sprint, everything had just gone so well. I was making decisions. I was being assertive. I was building in confidence. And I really felt that I'd come into my own for the first time ever. And I was racing enemies in the final. I'd won the first one. I had a second sprint. And I thought, I'm not going to just win here. I'm going to annihilate her. I'm just going to go for a time and see what I can do for the last 200 because I already know I think I've, I've got this. I sat down in the semifinals, looked at my opponent and thought, she's bricking it. It's, it's, it's done. And I couldn't, mm. I, I was like on the inside going, oh, I've never, this is it's brilliant. But quite, you know, I'm never unnerving in some ways. I feel so dominant, <laughs> which is something that I don't usually feel. Um, yeah. It just, I never, I don't think in my career I ever felt as good as I did in that moment. And they reckon that the average gold medal is won at 27 and a half years of age, which is pretty much how old I was randomly during, the, in 2008. I think it's a combination of experience and body, um, your body being developed to a point where it's strong, undamaged, and your brain is in gear. You've got all the things. Yeah. And they, and that obviously proved, and the point was proven yeah. with yourself. Yeah. What was the um, what was the atmosphere like in Beijing? Blacklined. Really? They had to pull some of the the support staff, the Beijing support staff, so the volunteers into the stadiums to fill them and encourage them to clap. They was having they were having some cheering practice one day of warm up, which we thought was hysterical. Somebody was basically teaching the crowd how to make more noise. Um, which is bizarre. Because um, they put on quite a big show, didn't they? Mm. It looked from where I was and like watching it on the TV, it looked like a big extravagant show. I mean, you know, what was it like when you were walking out onto the, you know, for the um, open parade? The, we were the allowed to do it. Hey? We had to watch the opening ceremony from our rooms on television. Because the, co the coaching staff and the managers never let us do an opening ceremony because there's too much time standing up. Don't stand if you can sit and don't sit if you can lie. <sighs> so we weren't allowed. We were allowed to go to the closing ceremony, which is fantastic, and everything's done and you can just relax anyway. But you potentially stood on your feet, penned and herded into the stadium, not get home till midnight, which is past our bedtime. And, <laughs> you know, you're looking at seven, eight hours on your feet which is not yeah. preparation for, for, you know, a leg-based sports athlete. So we weren't allowed, we were never allowed to go. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right. That's, uh, okay. 
disappointing. I, I watched the I watched the London opening ceremony from my bed in my pajamas next to my teammate Jess. We both sat there with some snacks and watched it in our pajamas. That's odd. That is. So if, if, is it only the cycling lot that don't I, do it? I think some more people do it these days. Yeah. Um, if, if they can get away with it, because I think if you're in the first few weeks of if you're in the first week of the Olympics, yeah, definitely don't. it would be a bad idea. But some sports as well that aren't so leg dominant don't find it a problem. You know, if you're a swimmer, yeah. you know, it's equal balanced upper lower body, probably more upper body. So maybe they don't feel the same. But yeah, I mean, they think that we're no fun, but we're also winning medals. So we weren't going to change what we do. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I understand. Okay, let's let's fast forward four years yeah. from, from Beijing to obviously the London Olympics, which was mental as in in an awesome way it was awesome um how did you find it and was there was there an extra pressure because of it being you know it's your it's the home olympics isn't it Mm. oh which were awesome weren't they i mean as far as far as as a spectator it was um it was awesome just to watch london put that together but um yeah go on it was it was the most like we wonderful event in every possible way I think a lot of people felt that nothing would ever compare in their careers to being able to compete at home Olympics because you don't have no idea when you start your sport whether you'll ever have the opportunity um, but going in as reigning world and Olympic champion into that four-year cycle mm. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy um, <laughs> it was so much pressure from the moment I kind of came out the last week well the next Olympics are in London how do you think you're going to do I was like, I'm going to do my best. (laughs) But you never know what, you can't force the results to happen. You can only keep training and pushing yourself. You don't know whether someone might come up who's going to be better than you. I can't control that. I can only control what happens to me. But the the sponsorship, the media attention, um, everything was just... I mean, you couldn't look anywhere without seeing a 2012 advertising. You were like, ah, it's there, it's, it's everywhere. There's no escape. Every single day for that four years, you were like, right, London Olympics, I want to make the team. I, I mean, because I nearly didn't make the team. There was some controversy over whether they thought that I was past it. Um, and I was like, well, I'd, I'd really like to give it a go, guys, as I am the reigning champion. It was, it was tough. I had to battle to get on the team. I didn't want to miss out. So, but it was, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a relief when it was over. I'm not going to lie. I enjoyed it. I appreciate it. The crowd, the noise of the crowd was unbelievable. The capacity of that velodrome is quite, in London, is quite big compared to most velodromes. Sometimes you get 3,000 or so because of the dimensions of a track and how you don't block the view. There's only so big you can build stadiums. Yeah, yeah. But because it's an amphitheatre, the noise is deafening, like it shakes your rib cage um, when the, oh. when the crowd cheers. It just it made your sort of hairs on your arms stand on end. It was it was crazy, and I think I mean obviously the the most the the highlight of my entire career. It is filled with a lot of obviously pressure and expectation, which you will never forget that feeling. I remember lying on the floor about 20 minutes before the Kieran final with my earphones on and looking at the ceiling. And I, <laughs> I can remember exactly what that, that looks like, lying on the mat, looking at the ceiling, just trying to relax. And my heart feels like it's going to explode out of my chest. And I was like, 
Yeah. You look over the one shoulder for a split second and you basically fuck it up. It's your fault and no one else's. And I was like, oh, don't. Just because, you know, you're racing with eight other people and they can do anything and you have to read the situation correctly. And you're like, oh, I actually would rather be swallowed up by the earth right now <laughs> than exist in the moment. And then you're like, no, I want to be here. I've trained really hard to be here. I deserve to be here. I do want to be here. I want to be here. I want to be, here. <laughs> and everything in your body is telling you, oh my God, fight or flight, fight or flight. Um, and that's tough. That, I mean, that in many ways, the super champion, the person who repeats success over and over and over again has that ability just to sort of, quiet down everything that's going on inside their head and body at that moment because um, if you listened to it or, or allowed it to take over you'd be a complete wreck just trying yeah. to keep the blinkers on when those moments are like a sensation your body is overwhelming but, what's um i tell you what i've always been interested in what's it like in the village you know, amongst all the athletes, is there like a deep, is there a buzz and like excitement or is there so much pressure on yeah. everyone there that it's a bit like, Ugh. Everyone thinks it's like partying and there's these big, you know, yeah. raging parties going on and everyone's having sex. And it's like, well, it's like, no. It basically, imagine, okay, imagine getting like 10,000 really nervous people in one enclosed space. Yeah. Not... There's, there's definitely a sense of anxiety. You can see people who have finished and they try and keep themselves separate and some are having little parties. But on the whole, most people are walking around the dinner um, hall with a tray looking like they want to like pass out or die or just escape, like nerves, nerves, nerves. Um, and the, the, the food courts, you basically just eat. You basically just wander around with a tray, get food, Spend as much time as you can eating because there's nothing else in the day to distract you from the fact that you're really nervous. Mm. Do you, um, when you're there in the Olympics, do you, do you train as well or yeah. is it just compete and then eat, sleep? No, you train as well. So you definitely would go on the boards probably every day, at least every day, even if you just do a short 20-minute session or just keep the how, how, how are you how hard are you pushing yourself though or is it just like a sort of maintaining mm. uh, type of uh, level yeah, so know. some days you might do just a recovery session so you just spin your legs for 20 30 minutes just easy just to sort of yeah. brush them out get them moving keep them supple and other and then you might alternate that with days where you really go and put like maybe th only three efforts in maybe two three ten second efforts so you do a warm-up um, you know, you spend 20 minutes warming up on the rollers progressively, and then you just basically just touch your high end speed, but without yeah. doing too much damage. But you have to keep going there to keep the body and the muscles activating because a lot of it in sprinting is about that reactive speed, which is muscle yeah, yeah. is kinetics, and your muscles like calcium kinetics, and you want to remind your body that it's be explosive. So you just you just kind of go in and you do a little bit. But it's good that you have a little bit of training in your day as well because it's a day, part of your day that's also filled with something. Because you're not sleeping, because you're not tired and you're nervous because you're at the Olympics. And it's, you know, it's, it's, you have a lot of time on your hands and then, you know, you're sat down because you're not supposed to be stood up walking, trying to waste time, twiddling your thumbs. It's, um, it's not the easiest environment to exist in for two weeks. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's, it does. It's a sort of 
I, don't, I wouldn't say it's disappointing to hear that because obviously everyone at home is like, oh, they're in the Olympic Village. It must be a right laugh because they're cool. all like, but no, no, it's no, 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 no. It's just it's, it is what it is. It's yeah. it, you know we've got to be a realist about this. You've got like a load of reasonably young people with the weight of the world, the weight of their countries yes. on their shoulders. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Everyone is in some ways, you know, like for example, you can be sat in the dinner hall and you see such a range of human body types that we play guess the sport because you're wearing a big tag or it's got your sport written on small enough. So if you walk past somebody close enough, you can just take a slight glance to see what they do. And you start sort of like, right, what do you reckon? I'd be like, oof, I reckon javelin, javelin for that one. Or like, you just like, and then you try and you're like, some sports are really hard to work out what people do. Some are totally obvious, but you what, what, what would make you say a javelin? What would make you say a javelin like, Probably quite, quite muscular, upper body. Um, probably because they're track and field, they'll have a bit of swag about, swagger about them. You know, they won't be like... <laughs> a thing? Is that a thing? Oh, track and field. Yeah, oh. you know, because that's kind of cool, isn't it? It's a cool sport to be in. Um, and then, like, then you have the team sports and the gymnasts that, like, march in, all these tiny people marching in with their perfect hair. And it just kind of, it, it's just, a, it's a really bizarre group of human bodies in one space. So it's quite entertaining to see, but also just all the different nationalities that you meet. Um, and the, and the food, can I just say boxy? When I say there's a, di- a food hall the size of football football pitch, it's got every food you could possibly imagine from around the world. So you can go and get a Yorkshire pudding and have it with some sushi and then have a North African curry on the side there um, and then maybe some, some kind of, you know, something you've never tasted before. So you can, like, eat all these incredible things 24 hours of the day. So is it good quality? Yeah, I mean, they have to provide food as well to suit every single nation of the world's yeah. taste because you've got to eat kind of, you know, pre-competition, you very much stick to things that you're familiar with. Obviously, you wouldn't go crazy, but when you're finished, you can try all this incredible food you've never seen before, never laid eyes on. And also watching people's eating habits, like what they go for, how much <laughs> they eat. You see these, um, the marathon runners were like, Hmm. And you're like, ooh, that's that. Like really skinny people with nothing, and then like big weightlifters with like mountains of food. It's brilliant. Yeah, we. Whenever we were away, we used to always try and obviously we're Brits, so unfortunately the British canteen when you're away <laughs> in, in the military is apps. I'm sorry to say this, if anyone's a, a, a chef for the, those those facilities, but it is diabolical. We used to always try and sneak into the American DFAC. It was called DFAC. They had like awesome, awesome scrams of food. Sold. So yeah, I sort of, I, I, I dream of places like an Olympic village food court. There we go. But um, what of all the medals you won, Olympic medals, which was the sweetest? What's the best one? The one that, you know, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, I guess in London, the Kieran, the gold medal in London was because there was so much expectation on it. It was hard, hard to get. I feel like Beijing was almost a gift to me. Like I'd trained hard and it came to me, but I had to fight so hard for that. Um, in terms of team politics, yeah. very much last dance in many ways, out with the old, in with the new. Yeah. I had to fight so hard in so many ways to that moment. And so for me, that was the, you know, the biggest achievement and therefore the most, yeah, the sweetest. Emotional. Very emotional. And it was the yeah. end as well. You know, I was calling it quits. 
I, I mean, I had no choice, but that was unfortunately the way it is in sport. Um, and leaving it all behind in that one moment when it was finished, when it was over, I was overwhelmed with emotion. It's too much. What was your What was the atmosphere like when, like? literally seconds before you started during it i bet you i bet you can't remember the race that much no. as in what was going on around you no yeah i mean to be honest you're aware of the noise to some degree when your name is announced because you roll up to the line and then they'll go so and so from here from here and here and obviously it's like yeah 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 wow so it's kind of it was disproportionate to to you know to be a gb athlete there you got like an extra boost which i'm grateful for very grateful for um but then once the whistle's blown nothing it could be nobody in that velodrome not yeah, one yeah. person it wouldn't make a difference because you're in your zone doing your job it doesn't matter um and then obviously when you cross the line and that's just crazy just just try and soak up as much as possible. But the thing is, your adrenaline's pumping. Everything, you know, it's actually hard to take it all in in some ways. Do you feel shell-shocked, yeah. do you think? Like, there's just so much. You've just basically rinsed your body physically and now you're trying to deal with it mentally and there's so much noise. Everyone else is excited and you're probably like that. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, you're still trying to catch up. Your brain's still trying to catch up with what on earth has just gone on there. And, and that's why in many ways when you look when I look back on it it kind of feels very dreamlike very vague because I think you're so your adrenaline is so high and you're in a moment a very very kind of you know challenging moment that it's difficult to take in that your surroundings in many ways you, yeah. you haven't got space for that so then your memory becomes fairly lucid and a bit vague did it actually happen to me did that actually yeah. happen to me? Because I can't really feel it. Mm. Mental. Mm. Um, how did how did how did life change after the 2012? Like I was, you know, I'm going to say how did life change after the Olympics, but really it's you know the 2012 Olympics because you went out. Yeah. That was you, I suppose. Would you say retiring? Yeah. So how how did your life change after that Olympics? Well, I thought that I'd be very happy to not have to carry that kind of expectation on my shoulders and that I could settle down, do some gardening, basically live my best lockdown life. Um, yeah. And I soon realized very quickly that I was kind of bored of it. Yeah. I think everyone thought, you know what, she's married, she's settled, she's gonna have babies and live happily ever after. And I was like, I don't really feel that way. And I can't deny the way I feel. I kind of feel like I want to do more. You know, I still feel like I could be an athlete. And that's kind of, you know, it broke my heart in many ways because I would have liked to have continued to Rio, but the option wasn't there. I mean, I was lucky to go to Rio and be part of the BBC commentary team. And that was brilliant. But I really wanted to be there. I didn't feel I'm done. I still don't feel I'm done. I've got problems, Foxy. I've got problems. <laughs> um, I was like, it's been delayed for a year. Maybe I can make a comeback <laughs> to Tokyo Olympics. <laughs> no. Um, but I kind of took up running and doing other sports that I was never allowed to do. But when I took up running, I started to do like 400 meter efforts at the local track. Yeah. Bought some spikes. 
started going a bit crazy at it and everyone's like really Victoria just well you know you can just chill out if you want and I'm trying to make myself spew I'm trying so hard I'm like ah just come I want to kind of want to do it but I don't want to do it what I don't know what to do because that's the only yeah. thing I've ever known I didn't want to cycle because that hurt like heartbroken um yeah. So, yeah, I was just constantly looking for new and different things to do. I mean, I was lucky to do lots of sports, things like surfing, things like skiing, things I haven't been allowed to do for risk of injury. And I was yeah. enjoying those. You, I think you, we, we people at home as sort of like non-professional athletes or sports persons, we forget that, that you're, you're not allowed to do stuff. I was watching a TV show the other day and it was Peter Crouch and he, he's allowing himself with other ex-footballers, I think, to go and do stuff they never did. And it was my first realization of, oh yeah, they're not, you're not like, you know, I go skiing in the winter if I can and do stuff. And I, I'm, I'm very grateful for my time in the military because it allows you to do that sort of thing. But then you forget that there's, because everyone thinks sports people are mega outdoorsy outgoing, which you all are, but you're not allowed to do it mm. to a certain degree because it, you know, you're, what you're trying to achieve is too important to the, you know, the cause, isn't it? Yeah. So, you, I mean, in your contract, it says to avoid sports, obviously, dangerous sports. They don't, they can't stop you, but you choose not to because it is your job. And it would look mm. very bad if you went skiing and broke your ankle. And it might not be your fault. Um, so you have to kind of think, well, there'll be plenty of time for that when I retire. So I was making yeah. time for it when I retired. Immediately, I did lots of different things, lots of new sports, which which I really enjoyed. And, you know, for me, going skiing after the, after the Olympics, that following year, I think I did three holidays, that three ski trips that winter. And because yeah. I was still physically strong, I was like, I was getting away with absolute murder. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I should probably be more careful. But I had enough muscle, not style, to get myself out of trouble. Did and I grizz really, it out? Huh? <laughs> to just to grizz it out just when it... Grizz it out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's my style normally. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. Like I love that, um, but I did. I still feel there's a kind of yearning to do something more seriously. Like I'd love to be an athlete more than anything else in the world. I wish I could you, still be an athlete. Mm, well, you you are you will you'll be you are remembered as an athlete. Oh, remember, oh, it's not it's not you haven't lost that. Oh, uh, you've you've, you've carved your name into history but um you have chosen also to do a sport which would be considered quite dangerous yeah. riding horses mm -hmm. jockey why i mean i know i think i know that you're, you you love horses anyway don't yeah. you i've never really ridden a horse before but i do love animals i love horses and i thought it'd be it you know when somebody offered me this chance to um to learn to ride as a jockey i was like yeah i'll give that a go i've never done it before and i remember thinking well, unless you try, you don't know. It might be like the best thing I've ever done. So I thought, well, I'll have a couple of lessons for a few days and then I'll get back to you and see if you, if you want me to train to become a jockey for the next 12 months. Jump jockey as well. So I was like, I spent 10 minutes in my first lesson absolutely scared shitless on this ginormous horse called the secret weapon. <laughs> um, I was like, a long way to fall. It's a long way to fall from up here. Um, and I, it was nerve wracking and I absolutely loved it. I could feel that sense of adrenaline and excitement in it. 
And I was like, this is, this is like, this horse was an ex-eventing champion, a Blenheim champion. So he was like putting a novice, no, maybe somebody just passed their driving test in a Ferrari. And I was like, oh, oh it was sensitive, res really responsive, powerful, muscly. And I was like, this is like having this amount of power with a brain is terrifying and brilliant in equal quantities. Yeah. Um, I just fell in love with it immediately, immediately. So do you think that's given you, you know, post um, being an Olympic athlete, yeah. being a, a world champion, has that given you, is that some of the release that you've needed is, is that ability to go out and, and ride horses and jump? A hundred percent. It's absolute thrill. It's a huge adrenaline rush. It was something that I could fo focus my training because I was riding um, racehorses after I'd sort of passed my early development. I'd gone to jockey school with all the kids. Um, I was like mum, mum who kind of turned up. So I'd done all this jockey school thing in Newmarket. I proved that I could ride confidently. I was riding for stables, jumping horses. So I was training six days a week. And I'd be up at 5.30, finished at 12. And then I'd go and have a lesson with Yogi in the afternoon. And for me, it was like being back in my own life. So I was having like a regime, I was training hard and I was taking it very seriously and focusing on it because it's a dangerous sport. You know, I could seriously do some damage, if not worse, if I get this wrong. So for me, the focus, having a focus like that, a serious focus really gave me kind of something to grab onto and I loved it. And also I one said I couldn't do it, which equally... Yeah, it's, I, I've got I've got that theme basically. Yeah, if you want, so if, if anyone wants Victoria Pendleton to do something, tell her she can't do it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so you obviously didn't go straight into being, you know, bit, you know, riding horses. So I mean, would you mind? I mean, I'm you know I'm big into the whole mental health side of things. Would you mind telling us a bit about your journey with mental health yeah. post sort of? You, you know your professional athletic career and, yeah. how, and how did that man manifest itself so I've always been somebody who's had to work on my mental approach mainly because mm. I'm not a particularly confident individual and I take things very personally and I beat myself up like when I make mistakes I really beat myself up for it to a point where I'm destructive and that's something that I've always struggled with my whole life. And I, um, you know, I've had highs and lows. And, and being in an elite sports situation with immense pressure and expectation and the uncertainty of not being able to deliver it because you never know what's going to happen on race day. And your wage is based on whether you deliver year on year. Your contract is based every year on year on whether you perform it walked yeah. down and I struggled with it. And I was lucky enough to work with um, Dr. Steve Peters, who wrote the, the Chimp Paradox. He was part of the oh, yeah. support system. And I don't know what I would have done without him because he really helped me kind of identify my own faults in terms of how I approach things. Yeah. So work on strategies to, to be better at what I do. Uh, and, and I can honestly say if I hadn't have met Steve and worked with him, I wouldn't have achieved what I achieved, which... I know some people might think, well, that's rubbish. But I was like, well, just like you have to have physical coaching, I think having mental coaching is the same. Sometimes when did he, when did he, when did that come about? When did that relationship with Steve start? Probably in my early 20s. Oh, right. Okay. So that he was, he was, mm. he's been there. 
he's there for pro athletes, I suppose. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And okay, it's a great book, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I just, I just, I, I feel like you know, some people would be like, oh, embarrassed to say that they need to work on that because sometimes I used to get very low and very down on myself, and it wasn't helpful to my performance. I know that, and he was able to give me the tools to kind of work it out and it wasn't necessarily about like when people think of sports psychology it's not like imagery and imagining the race and stuff like that it's more about what makes me tick as an individual and how best I manage the personalities around me and whatnot and, and yeah. how to, to sort of recognize when I'm going to go on a downer about something and how to rectify it and that was you know they were basic life skills and you do you still employ them I do. today yeah, because yeah, yeah. I still do the same. I still have the same faults. You know, I still beat myself up when things don't go right. Mm. And usually, it's my unreasonable level of expectation. And people piss me off because they don't adhere to the rules of my kind of my being and my level of expectation. And I'm like, well, it's not for me to make someone else do that. Like, I have to, you know, recognise that. Um, but, you know, like for me, it, I thought that I was suffering at times there and I definitely was down. I wouldn't say maybe mildly depressed during times of my athletic career, but it wasn't until much later in my life and in retirement that I really experienced mental health difficulties to a level that I needed someone to come in and help me out. Um, yeah, so that's, yeah, and I think that's probably partly to do with loss of identity in many ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for uh, chatting about that. In fact, actually, what if in, what what advice would you, the legend that's Victoria Pandleton, give to anyone that's sort of feel if any, if anyone's out there struggling, what sort of advice would you give them? Mm. So I guess you, people struggle. There's, it's like it, it's not unusual. I think the the main things I'd probably say is you're never alone. There's always somebody out there who will understand where you're coming from and be able to help and support you. So don't be afraid to speak up about it or ask for help. Because let's face it, if somebody asks me for help and I can give help, I would happily and would happily and really enjoy being able to offer help to somebody else because, it, you know, it, it, wouldn't, it would come from a place of compassion and I get it because I felt it and it's awful. Um, so I think understand that people are always there for your help and speak up the second thing would be um that there is always light at the end of the tunnel however dark it seems and however hard it seems to move on from one place one repetitive suffering that there's always there is light at the end of the tunnel and be patient because it's when someone tells you to be patient when you're suffering you want to punch them because the first thing you want to do is get out of it yeah. get out of it by whatever means you can possibly use to get out but unfortunately it's a process that takes time and I think you have to be able to be patient and I think the, like, the third thing I'd probably say is find joy you have to seek joy in your life because no one else is going to put it in your, on your plate in front of you you've got to do things that make you happy and even if that means going outside and looking at a nice tree in your garden to start with because that's all you can muster up or going for a little walk somewhere quiet because that's all you can manage. Do it because it just it has to build on things you love. You have to put in the things that make you happy. And that might be a delicious latte. That might be going on a surf holiday in my, in my personal experience. You know, it might be going for a nice walk, taking the dog out. But little steps of finding joy. I wholeheartedly agree. And that's great advice. 
let's 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 go on to lighter hearted subjects yeah. quickly. Uh, tattoos, you're obviously yeah. sporting on there. I know you're into them. I know your partner, and he's got some banging tattoos. Yes. So, uh, any more future plans? Yes. Yeah. Soon as lockdown allows us to get tattoos, I'm going to get Athena on my other shoulder, the same size as Medusa, so I can have both sides of good slash evil. If we can call Medusa evil, she was cursed. It wasn't her fault. So yeah, yeah. I've got going to have Athena of that wisdom and whatever um and then i'm gonna have two tarot cards on my biceps so i've got four in the making but i also have some evidence to put in from my dog uh, so i've got oh, okay. and jaunty i've got their little names there because that's the hands that i used to walk them on i've got them tattooed on both wrists Stella and mr jaunty but i want to get something else for them um just because they're a big part of my life 10 years of my life and i bloody love those dobermans yeah Everence is great. Yeah. Good, good thing. Mm. So uh, if anyone wants to know about that, look it up. Google Everence. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've, we, you've touched on, I was going to ask next pretty much what, when lockdown ends properly, I'm gonna be what, what are your plans? Obviously ink. Ink. Loads of ink. I want to get full sleeves. But what else? Um, well, I've actually got, well, I want to go on some serious motorcycle adventures. That's what I want to do. Because um, I really love my street scrambler more than life itself. Actually, I feel emotionally attached to my motorcycle. My triumph motorcycle. I love it. Um, I want to go on some camping trips, like take a little tent and go whizzing around somewhere. Maybe go around Scotland somewhere, depending on the time of year, or go abroad and just kind of explore some places. Keep it basic, yeah. small bag. I'd love to get involved with doing some documentaries of that nature. And I don't think there is necessarily enough female representation in that place. It doesn't uh, seem to be, does there? I'm very willing to be, you know, down and dirty with it. I don't mind it. I quite like we, it. And I'd like to do that. In the military, we call it hard routine, where you basically sleep on the floor, eat cold food, and generally lead an extremely miserable life i'm happy to do <laughs> it's not, that it's not i joke I jo i'm joking it's not actually miserable it's just you, you're being properly with nature mm. so that's yeah i mean that's hard pretty routine. much yeah hard routine that's that's pretty much what i'm looking forward to to be honest with you mm. um i'm going to sum up i'm going to i'm going to ask two of my last questions yeah. and then i've had a, i've got a load of sort of questions from people readers listeners whatever you want to call them so um i'll ask one of those at the end okay. which i don't know i haven't looked at it yet so i'm not gonna i haven't picked it yet so first of all before we get there biggest inspiration for you in your life who is it my mum good answer very good answer yeah. and can you sum up what your mentality for life is uh don't let anyone else put judgments on what you can achieve yeah and you're and, and i'd like to back you up on that you're an amazing example of just that mm. being told you're not good enough for something and then basically becoming an olympic and world champion multiple mm. times uh right well, i'm going to move on now to the the reader's questions before we finish it's yeah. been i mean I've, I've really enjoyed this but uh right here we go so this is from ruthie underscore p83 on uh instagram and obviously, we you spoke earlier about the reason I've picked this is because you spoke earlier about lying on the floor, looking up at the ceiling, 
listening to stuff prior to, you know literally just before the race getting ready so what do you listen to what's on your playlist i want to know what was on your playlist for you know in your prep periods for pre-race okay so at that moment i was listening to uh Linkin Park Jay-Z Collision Course, 99 Problems, but a bit chain one, which I think yeah. is quite funny, being in yeah, sprint yeah. racing. Um, but for me, the go-to generally, if I look at the things I've listened to the most, would be The Prodigy. Like, Fat of the Land is probably one of my favourite albums of all time ever. To a point where I anticipate every note that's coming. I actually have the signed discs in my downstairs toilet from the guys saying they were behind me because they knew I was a fan going into the Olympics. Like, congrats on the gold medal, we're behind you all the way. And they all signed it. So I've got, got a key signature on my, on my wall downstairs. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, so Victoria VP, I've got to wrap it up now. That was, that was awesome. Um, you know, I've, it's a privilege to speak to you. It's been a privilege to actually get to know what it's like to be the achiever that you are and what it takes to get there and the feelings that you've gone through when you've been doing what is essentially an unbelievably amazing career. So thanks, legend. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Boxy. Thanks very much to Victoria. Hope you enjoyed that. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and follow me and the Book of Man for the latest news. Thanks again to Talisker for supporting this podcast and thanks for listening. Take it easy and I'll see you soon. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.